If you have your Bibles, let me encourage you to open up to a number of places this morning. Got quite a bit of ground I want to cover to try to get to the conclusion of these things. It's difficult to break up since it's all one thought. But nonetheless, 1 Timothy chapter 4, find something there. Put there. And then as you walk your way back to the left, stop off at 1 Corinthians 9. Of course, Romans 14, still walking back to the left. But we're not done yet. Acts chapter 10, verse 9 is the last one. So you got 1 Timothy 4, 1 Corinthians 9, Romans 14, and then Acts 10. And while you're finishing that up, we got word this morning uh, that Brother David Smith at New Home, uh, he did not get a good report about his cancer. And it's uh, become much more aggressive. And uh, so they're going to have to... Um, find another treatment. And so uh, I think most of you know Brother David at New Home, so I do want to uh, call out to the Lord on his behalf and ask the Lord to be gracious for him and for that entire body uh, as they walk through uh, this time. So if you found your place there in Acts 10, let's, uh, let's go to the Lord. Uh, Father, we are actually in the section of Scripture where we are reminded that the one thing that unites us is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And because we have been bound by our faith in Christ, we are an inseparable people who have been adopted into the family of God as the children of God, and that's the way it will be forevermore, and we praise You. So, Father, we lift up an entire body of people who are brothers and sisters in Christ, and specifically their pastor, Brother David. Uh, Lord, you alone are the great physician, and you have used Brother David in so many wonderful and marvelous ways in the ministry of the gospel, both there at New Home as well as in so many churches where he has preached revival and shared the gospel to so many people. Father, I pray that your spirit would work in his life in a supernatural way, Father, and take the cancer away from him. I pray that you would restore him fully to strength and continue to bless his ministry and bless his health and bless him with the many more days of shepherding the flock of God there at New Home as well as proclaiming the truth wherever he finds himself. And Father, I pray that he'd be on our hearts and minds often and that we would call out to you in prayer. And I pray that the Spirit of God would minister to that body in a mighty way as they walk through these days and let them be concluded with days of great rejoicing uh, for deliverance. Lord, I pray that you would help us now as we turn to your word. Give us a mind for your word. pray that you'd give us a heart of humility to respond in faith to your word. And I pray that you'd take my fumbling words, empower them, make sense with them, and do all this for your name's sake and for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 
I want to put a question on your mind and hearts this morning before we jump into the text. And it is one that does require quite a bit of thought. And it's simply this. Can something be sinful for me to do, but for you it's absolutely not an issue? Or let me flip that around. Could something be sinful for you to, to participate in, but for me it's not really a problem at all? It's a very dangerous question. In fact, the world's trying to answer that question right now, and this is how they answer that question. Well, there's my truth and there's your truth. But as believers who have been given the mind of Christ, we know there's no such thing. Truth, by definition, is one thing because it's true. And the moment that truth becomes two things is the very moment that truth becomes no thing at all. It becomes absolutely meaningless. And also as Christians, we know that truth resides with one person, and that is the Father who created the heavens and the earth and in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And they, through the work of the Holy Spirit, have written down the very words of God. And so we understand and we hold firmly to and would die on this hill that the Word of God is the source of all truth for us in regard to every part of life. Yet I still need to ask that question, are there things that might be such a difficulty for you with your conscience to the point of being sinful, whereas for me, it's absolutely a freedom for me and I don't struggle with it at all. So let's walk through that and examine that. And I want to remind you, I was reminded of this as I was looking at this over this past week. This is such an important truth. And you're like, Joey, if it's in the Bible, it's important. And I realize that, but think about where this is. Because Paul spends a chapter and a half on a very narrow subject. And if you understand the importance of the book of Romans, I mean, it's our first epistle. We get through the Gospels, we get to do a historical account, the works of the Holy Spirit. And then we come to the first epistle and what's it about? It's about the Gospel. The whole thing's about the Gospel, right? It's Paul's expression and explanation of the fullness of the Gospel. Yet he stops in chapter 14 and 15 and it gives us a very narrow application of the love that the gospel produces in our lives. And he spends a whole lot of time doing it. And he'll spend even more time in 1 Corinthians. So we have to pause and realize this is a very, very, very important issue. This is not for the sake of head knowledge. This is for the purpose of changing our lives. And it's very important. Paul had never even been to Rome, remember. He knows it's going to be an issue. He's been to Corinth and he's dealt with the mess over there. So he knows as these people are coming to Christ and they're professing their faith in Christ, they're coming with all their baggage. And so they have all these convictions and they have consciences regarding specific issues and they're bringing that stuff into the body. And Paul says, I need to instruct you on how to deal with this issue because it's such an important issue. You're going to let those things divide you and you're forgetting about the one person that unites you. And so Paul says, let me tell you how to walk through these things. And if we will do what Paul instructs us, look at where we'll wind up. Notice verse 18 of Romans 14, 18. I think I told you to stop at Acts 10. But run to Romans 14. Look at verse 18 with me real quickly and notice what he says. For he who in this way serves Christ... In other words, if you, if you walk in the way that I'm about to teach you, you'll be found, notice, acceptable to God and approved by men. 
In other words, he said, I'm going to describe one of the most divisive difficulties in the body today. I'll teach you how to walk through this. And if you follow what I'm instructing you, you're going to be acceptable to God. And your brother is going to approve of your attitude toward him. In other words, we check all the boxes. And so we desperately need to learn how to walk through this, humbly submitting to what Paul is teaching us through the Holy Spirit of how to handle these difficult issues of having different opinions and different convictions about particular things. Now let me remind you of the categories. Let me build this back into your thought. Paul takes all of that and he says, let me give you two categories. Those who are weak in faith and those who are strong. And remember, weak in faith has nothing to do with sin whatsoever. It's not somebody that's weak, struggling in sin. That's not weak in faith. Nor is it the person who is weak in their understandings of the great doctrines of the faith. We're not talking about somebody that goes, well, you know, there might be two ways to heaven. We'd call them something entirely differently. That is not weak in faith. We're talking about the person who is weak in conscience. Their conscience overwhelms them to the point where they can't either believe nor accept or even walk in the freedoms that they now have in the Lord Jesus Christ. They just feel so convicted about some things or even a great many things and they're just not enjoying the relationship that they have with the Lord. They're so burdened by all their convictions. The opposite of that is someone who is strong in the faith. It's someone who understands their freedoms in the faith. But again, we're not talking about someone who's free to sin. Not an antinomian by any stretch of the imagination, okay? We're simply talking about somebody who understands the essential versus the non-essentials. Oh, they'll die on the hill of doctrine all day long, filled with joy. But when it comes to a non-essential, you'll find them absolutely unconvicted or uncommitted to either way. It's just not about that for them. So Paul's like, so we need to deal with these things. And do you realize if, if you and I weren't sinful, we'd have been done like two and a half Sundays ago because there's only one word that he gives us that's positive and it's the word accept. 14.1, he uses the word accept. 15.7, he uses the word accept. So he bookends the whole section with this one thing you're supposed to do. And I read the ESV this week and it uses the word welcome and neither word even gets remotely close because we're supposed to act toward others just in the same way that Christ has acted toward us. Welcome is a bit mundane, except doesn't reach it, right? So he says you have these different opinions and convictions about important things. But the most important thing is that you receive one another wholeheartedly. And if we weren't sinners with depraved hearts, we could stop there. But Paul doesn't stop there because he's like, I know what you're going to do. So I'm going to go through a list of three things that you're going to do. And each one I'm going to tell you, don't do this. Because if you do that, these are the mistakes that you're making. So he actually works through all the responses that you and I are going to have toward one another when it comes to our conscience and our personal convictions. But the first thing that we need to realize is how this works, the role of our conscience in the life of a believer. And Paul wants to use the example of meat, which is super bizarre. Because how in the world could you tie morality and meat together? And in our context, in our culture, we're looking at each other, shaking our heads, going, well, that would certainly not be an issue for me. But you do have to realize it was the hotbed issue during that day as the church is coming together from Jew and Gentile. 
So if you have Acts open, turn with me to chapter 10, and let me show you some things starting in verse 9. Acts 10, verse 9. The word of the Lord says, On the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. Verse 10, but he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, Peter fell into a trance. He saw the sky opened up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. And a voice came to him saying, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Notice Peter's response in verse 14. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy or unclean. And so how in the world was it for a Jewish man to consider particular meats, birds, particular flesh off limits? And the reason was that God had told them they were off limits in the Old Testament law. And so Peter, being a devout Jew, was deeply convicted by this, had obeyed the law in regard to the dietary restrictions. And so when the Lord puts him in this position or begins to reveal truth to him through a trance, Peter's like, not happening. And he knew who was speaking to him because he says, no, Lord. In other words, his conviction about this issue ran all the way down to the very core of his being. And he responded, I'm not doing this. And of course, the Lord responds, hey, what I've called holy, don't you dare call unclean. If I've determined it clean, it's clean. And you know how many times it takes Peter to come to the conclusion? Three times he argues with the Lord about this. This was a conviction that was wrapped around his heart and it was not going to be an easy issue for him to walk through to let go of this. But when Christ satisfied the law, meat's no longer an issue for the Jew. But he's not the only guy that's got an issue because I could also take you to the Gentiles. And for the Gentiles, they came from paganism and worshiping other gods. And so they would take a particular kind of animal, say a goat, and they would use this goat, cut this goat up, use its blood to sacrifice to their pagan god. And then they would all pull up at the table, cook what was left and have a party and eat the rest of it. And now they're in the church and they're going to have fellowship Sunday and somebody brings goat. And they're like, I can't believe you would bring goat to the church. We don't worship like that anymore. We worship the one true God. That stuff will never cross my lips again. I remember who I was before Christ, and that's not who I am now. I wouldn't touch that with a 10-foot pole. And you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. I understand how deeply you are convicted about this issue. And so I need to learn as a fellow brother and sister in Christ, how I'm going to walk through Fellowship Sunday now. I've got to handle this in a way so as not to offend my brother. And see, none of that stuff even remotely connects with us, but Paul's going, oh, it's going to connect with them. they got people all over the map in that church, and they're going to be offended because of their personal convictions, and I need to tell you how to walk through these things. So how do we handle these things? Look at verse 14 of Romans chapter 14. Turn back there with me now. That's the last time we'll be in Acts 10. I'm just going to bump these places and, and go right back. Here's instruction. 
Romans 14 and verse 14. I know, Paul says, absolutely convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing, what a broad statement, nothing is unclean, and then it's modified by the next two words, in itself. Meaning by itself, meat's not a thing, y'all. Drink, not a thing. It's, it's just a thing. It has no moral strings attached whatsoever. But notice what he says in the second part of that verse. But to him who thinks anything, all of a sudden we brought everything back into it. To him who thinks anything to be unclean to him, it's unclean. And you're like, how in the world could you take a thing like meat, has no moral issue whatsoever, it's just food, and tie some sort of morality to it, and the moment you do, it's no longer a thing. Now it's a deal. And it's something that you have to deal with. And you're like, how can you do that? You don't understand, we all do that all the time. Their baggage is one of the biggest things that ties morality to things that are no real thing at all. Well, let me give you an example. That's just a thing. It has no morality tied to this thing whatsoever. But do you realize what people have done with this thing? Oh, they've committed some moral crimes against God with this thing. And when they come to faith in Christ and they realize what they did with some object that has no moral ties, they made it moral. And you know what that reminds them of? It reminds me of what I did. That reminds me of who I called that time. It reminds me of what I looked at at that time. And I don't want nothing to do with that thing. That's how our convictions work. That's how our conscience works. They're not bad. They're issues within our life that in and of itself, it, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong for you to have one of these. Unless, of course, it reminds you of who you were. Now, now it becomes an issue for you and it might be best in your life not to have one of these things. We, we could talk about computers. Computers are just absolutely, it's just a thing. There's nothing morally wrong with the thing. But sometimes you do things with that and all of a sudden now you've tied something moral to that and you need to have a conviction within your heart. I, I'm just not a person that can possess a computer anymore. It reminds me and it gives me opportunities to participate in something that does not glorify God. Now that thing is an issue for me and I don't want to, have, I don't want to participate in it, with it anymore. Now what am I going to do with that? And the danger is, let me jump way ahead in my notes, the danger is, and I'll come back to it time and time again, now I'm going to set a moral standard that if anybody has one of these, they're just not holy. You should be more like me. I don't have one of those. And it's a measure of faithfulness to God. And if you want to be faithful to God, you'll put yours down too. Now all of a sudden we've crossed a line. That might be true for you. But please don't think that's true for everyone. It's just a thing. And because you've done something with it, it's become something else. But that's not the case for everybody. Does that make sense? Again, Paul says, in and of itself, we can go down a whole list of things. They're just things. 
But the moment that you tie something to it and you're, it messes with how you think, well, now, now it becomes a conviction for you personally. Convictions and conscience, again, are extremely important. If you're in Romans 14, look at verse 8. Paul reminds us here that all of life is meant to glorify God. Notice verse 8. For if we live, we live for who? The Lord. If we die, we die for who? The Lord. So therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. In other words, every part of life ought to be done for the glory of God. Every choice that you make and things you want to do ought to be done for the glory of God. Everything you choose not to do, ought, you should not do that for the sole purpose of the glory of God. All of life should glorify God. How much more should your convictions and your conscience glorify the Lord? Notice verse 6 of the same chapter, Romans 14. He who observes the day. Now he's moved off meat. He's talking about particular days. He who observes the day, he observes it for the Lord. He who eats does so for the Lord and he gives thanks to God. And he who does not eat for the Lord, he does not eat and he gives thanks to God. You see, you've got two guys doing two totally different things and both of them is doing it for the glory of God. So you can't dismiss your personal conviction and your opinion about particular things because you should have formed them for the sole purpose of the glory of God. Uh, the first thing I thought about this when I was working through this is we should give a lot more thought and prayer to the things that we choose to do and the things that we choose not to do. I don't think it's good for us to walk around without giving thought to our ways. I think we should walk around in constant thought of our ways and be personally convicted that the things I've chosen to do is going to glorify God. And the things that I said, I'm not participating in that. I'm not doing that. The reason behind that is because I'm choosing to glorify God in that particular way. Therefore, you can't underestimate the conscience and conviction of your brother and sister in Christ. It's a very serious issue. Notice verse 20. Of Romans chapter 14. Notice the second part of that verse. All things, Paul says it again, all things indeed are clean. It's just a thing. But they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense or who eats and is offended by what he has eaten. It was just a thing. But because you have a conscience about it or a conviction about it, it's become evil for you to violate your convictions. Notice verse 22. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. Pay attention to your convictions and your conscience. I'll tell you they're not infallible in just a second, but right now I need to tell you to pay attention to them. Don't eat if sweat's rolling off your brow and you're worried about whether or not this is okay for you to do. Don't do it. It's that simple. Hold on to your conviction. Don't beat yourself up. Don't make yourself feel bad. It's something that the Holy Spirit is working in you and through you. Accept that. Hold to that. And don't cave into that. 
But at the same time, let me go on to say, you, you do understand that your opinions and your conviction is not the standard. Because we have one standard of truth and the standard of truth is what? The Word of God. And so it's the Word of God that will instruct our conscience and mature us over time. But until you're there, you hold firmly to your conviction until you're set free by the work of the Spirit of God. And I hope you're, these are not competing thoughts for you at, at all. You do have to understand what God was doing with Peter. You need to understand how difficult it was for him that day to begin the process of understanding, I can eat anything now that I'm free in Christ. I'm quite sure he did not walk off or climb down off of that roof and go and get him a barbecue sandwich in that moment. He probably wrestled with it a great many days, having the Lord told him three times, it's okay, dude. It's absolutely okay. And I can imagine he wrestled with God in prayer with tears rolling down his face going, surely, surely, surely not. Surely this is not okay. But gloriously over time through the work of the Spirit, he begins to understand, yeah, it is okay. In fact, I can't judge people in this way anymore. It's perfectly okay for you to eat anything you want to eat. And you think about the same way with the Gentile who offered that goat up as a sacrifice, right? Can you imagine the freedom he felt when the Spirit of God worked him to the place where he just first took bite of that goat and his past was gone? He no longer remembered he no longer struggled with worshiping those idols and he remembered or he began to understand that there is but one God and all the little g-gods never existed anywhere other than in my own mind. They had no power. There was nothing to them. And so I wasn't even doing it. What I was doing it was just sinning within myself because he doesn't even exist. God alone is in heaven and I can eat whatever I want. Can you imagine that day? What kind of freedom that person must have felt in that moment? But listen, it's not for me and you to drag people along and make them feel overwhelmed by their convictions. What is the thing that we always want to do? We want to argue that we're right about everything. And so we want to sit somebody down and go, let me, let me just tell you, you need to get over yourself. Stick it in your mouth. Chew it. Swallow it. That's how we do and the Lord's like, don't, don't. I'm working. You're not working. I'm delivering. You're not delivering. They're my child. They're not your child. And so I'm bringing them to a place where they understand the freedoms that they have in Christ. And it'll be a great day for them. And they won't struggle anymore. Now, if you're saying... This is all too complicated. You just opened up a whole world of convictions and consciousness for me. Why doesn't the Lord just give us a list about every single solitary circumstance of life? We like things that are black and white. We like things that are yes and no. We like things that are stop and go. They're just easy. Do no work on the Sabbath. Do you realize... Do no work on the Sabbath has been broken down into 39 categories, even today. Categories, not, not things. And within each of those 39 categories, 
those categories are filled with things that you can do to violate do no work on the Sabbath. Oh, the Jews have their lists. But what do we know to be consistently true about lists? I don't need a relationship if I have a list. If I have a set of rules to keep, then I don't need a relationship with God. But if convictions and opinions now take a place in me growing in my faith, all of a sudden I desperately need a relationship with God because He's the one that's going to walk me through my convictions and my conscience. I have to have Him and I need to have conversation with Him because He's the only one who understands me. He knows why I can't eat meat. He, he was there when I was born. He was in the home that I was raised in when my father and my mother said, no, we don't eat this. We don't, we don't eat that to glorify God. The Lord knows that I was there in those days. He knows how I was reared. And so I have to have the Lord to be able to walk through my, my conscience and my conviction. I'm in desperate need of a relationship. You see how the Lord begins to use these things? All of a sudden, this is one of the greatest avenues in your life in which the Lord begins to grow you and teach you and mature you because He doesn't have a list for that. He has a relationship for that. Let me show you how these things work. I, I've been wanting to give you an example for weeks, and then after my examples, we'll turn off to the three things that you're going to do that's going to violate the commands of God, and we can run through those really quickly. But go with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Women, have you ever sat down with the Lord and tried to figure out what you need to wear to church? Or has that never even been a thing for you? What the Lord does with almost all of these issues of conviction and conscience, He lays out principles. And what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to sit down with the principles, study the principles, and spend the rest of time in prayer making sure what you do doesn't violate the principles. Now notice with me 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9. Paul writes, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. There's your instruction on what to wear to church. And you're like, I'd rather have a list. Of course you'd rather have a list because it'd be so much easier to do. But you don't get a list. You get a principle. And what as I work through those passages in regard to what women ought to wear, here's the overarching principle that I think should be applied, and it's this. Don't draw attention to yourself. Now, if you go out on a date to, with your husband, you ought to be thinking, I need to draw attention to myself because I want all of his attention to be on me. And so that reflects in how you look and what you wear. But when you come to church, you ought to have a different mindset because you're not trying to draw attention to yourself in any way, shape or form, because all attention goes to the glory of God. And so these women were coming in such a way as to draw attention to themselves. And Paul's like, what are you trying to do? This is about the worship of God. This is not about you. And so you take these principles and you begin to apply them. What does proper clothing and modesty mean for you? Well, it can mean a whole lot of things. For some women, they're absolutely convicted that every time they walk through this door, they're going to have a dress on. And I praise the Lord for that conviction. 
For other women, that means blue jeans are absolutely fine. They consider them to be modest and proper clothing and discreet. And I totally agree. It's not an issue with me, but it may be a personal conviction and an issue with you. And much of what it has to do with, more than likely, is how you were raised and in the church you were raised began to form that conviction in your life. And so therefore you dress like you dress right now. But you do realize that it's an issue between you and the Lord alone and nobody else. And it's not for me to preach my convictions about that issue. I don't have any. But you do understand if I had them, it's not my role to preach my convictions. It's not about conformity. It's about diversity and your particular relationship with God. And you ought to have that conviction and you ought to hold firmly to that conviction and walk according to the principles of God. Now, as sinners, what do sinners do? Well, a woman comes along and says, this is my conviction. I'm not going to wear makeup. I'm not going to cut my hair and I'm going to wear a denim skirt. Well, that's absolutely fine for you to do. I have no problem with that whatsoever. But now you're going to go on and go, well, if you look at me right now, this is the absolute standard for faithfulness to God. If you want to be faithful to God, you'll start wearing this denim skirt. You'll stop wearing makeup and you'll stop cutting your hair in order that you might be more faithful to God. Have we crossed the line? We've desperately crossed the line. We've left Scripture behind and you're forcing other people to live by your convictions. And so then what do you do? Well, I need to get in a group of women that wear denim skirts because those are the women who have my personal convictions and I'm more comfortable with conformity rather than diversity. And so I'm just going to go to the church where they all dress this way. You see how this stuff works? And Romans 14 and 15 is just left in the dust. I don't have a problem if that's your conviction. If you want to do all three of those things, go for it. You'll never hear a word from me. But the moment that you look with a condescending attitude toward your sister in Christ who looks very differently than you is the moment that you've rebelled against the Lord and placed yourself as the standard of faithfulness. Remember the group of men who did that in the Bible? Pharisees, I think it was. But you need to wrestle with the convict. I mean, you need to wrestle with the principles. This is how convictions and consciences work. And you need to live according to your conviction and your principle. In fact, you ought to raise your children based on your convictions. They are your children after all. But you do have to understand how these principles work. So let's walk into another whole set of things. What are you going to do about Christmas? All of you guys have already decided unless you don't have kids yet. What are you going to do? About, how far are you going to go? I'll tell you how far we went. We went the whole way. And unless I get slowed down by my son-in-laws, we're going to go the whole way with those grandkids. But what you don't need to do is go, well, my personal conviction is we cut the line right here. We don't do that. And we, we just consider that to be the standard of faithfulness. If you want to be faithful, you'll do what we have done. No, don't do that. What about Halloween? Are you really going to participate in Satan's birthday? Y'all see how social media lights up around Halloween of all these Christians getting on there? You know what we did? What we wanted to do? We didn't feel convicted by it. We went around every year. Some people that are brothers and sisters in Christ are passionate and think differently than me, and that is okay. 
because the thing that unites us is Christ. And we can sit down and have a cup of coffee and talk about how we ought to or not how we should celebrate Halloween, but at the end of the day, it's an non-essential issue. You really going to go to Disney World? How in the world can you go to Disney World when they take all that money you spent, and I'm talking about a lot of it, and they put it all behind immoral lifestyles? Are you okay with that? Some brothers and sisters in Christ are absolutely not okay with that, and they've never been to Disney World. We went three years ago. Had a blast. You see, some of these issues we become impassioned about, but you've got to keep them in their proper place. It is okay for you to have that conviction. I, one of my favorite people on the planet will not go to movies to glorify the Lord. And so we'll have a conversation about it sometime. He'll say, well, t tell me the last movie you went that glorified the Lord. And I'll be like, ah, mm. if you're going to put it that way, it's been like never. But he doesn't use that as a standard of faithfulness. It's about his personal faithfulness. One more example, vaccinations and masks. It's just a thing. That's all it is. But it became a political thing and it became a religious thing. And then all of a sudden you had people going, well, I really prayed and the Lord told me not to get the shot. And I'd be like, okay, I'm glad you prayed about that. Other people would go, man, I just anguished in prayer over this thing. And the Lord told me to get the shot. And I'd be like, okay, that's cool. And then you back up and go, did the Lord really? It doesn't matter because it's their personal opinion and their personal conviction run with it. But the whole time I'm sitting here going, y'all, it's just a thing. Did you anguish in prayer over that blood pressure pill? I didn't. I swallowed it and chased it with water. It had no moral ties to it whatsoever, but it became such a social issue that everybody strapped morality to it. And now they're all trying to bring God into it. And now they're all saying, I did what I did to glorify God. And I go, that's fine. I glorify the Lord in all things. But you also need to realize that what he did is different than what you did. And he did it to glorify God as well. It's not a standard of faithfulness. It's a thing. It's a conviction and it's an opinion and it's important. But it's not Christ. And you had so many churches divide over that issue. They split over something that's absolutely the closest of being nothing. Because they made it something because they tied morality to it. I was good until Dwight died, and then all of a sudden I had baggage to it. And it became a bigger thing for me. But that's how easy it does. That's how it goes. Things happen, and all of a sudden what's just a thing becomes a really big deal. And as a church, we have to remind ourselves that there is only one thing that unites us, and Jesus is bigger than everything else. So have your opinions and have your convictions but you be sure that we stay one in Christ. So let me run through them there real quick. First thing that you're going to do that you shouldn't do is found in verse 4. Don't judge. Notice what he says there. Who are you to judge the servant of another? And we talked about that last week. Don't judge. Not issues of conscience. 
we're going to judge when we get to 1 Corinthians. And don't ever think that this is some kind of trump card. You can never say anything to anybody. That's not what this is about. This is about don't judge persons or personal opinions or personal convictions. You're not the judge of conscience. God is. Second thing, look at verse 13. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put a stumbling block or an obstacle in a brother's way. In other words, don't exercise your freedoms in front of your brother who's weighed down with convictions. Reason number one, look at verse 15. For if food, <clears throat> for if food because of your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. If your brother's offended by something, don't offend your brother. You're violating except one another. You're no longer loving. Secondly, look at verse 15. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Or verse 20, look at the first part. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. In other words... If your brother's struggling with a freedom that you have, don't exercise your freedom with him. God is working on him. You let God work on him. And I bring it back to what I said something earlier. It's not our job to get them through their conscience. It's something that the Spirit of God will do, and you need to trust the work of the Holy Spirit. It's all right to have conversations, but it's not all right for you to flaunt your freedom in front of your brother. Women, you know what you ought to wear if you find yourself going to one of those churches where women wear denim skirts and they don't do makeup and they don't cut their hair? You know how you ought to dress? Just like them. Why? So you won't offend them. Believe it or not, I've grown up a little bit in the last 10 years, so if I walked in one of these churches on the mountain, guess what version I would preach out of? King James. It'd take me a lot longer to get there, but I would do it because I don't want to offend them. Christ is bigger than that. I almost tried to be smart aleck, but I'll drop it right there. You have to remember the greater concern. Look at verse 17. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God, approved by men. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. That is so contrary to culture. It's like the end thing to do to offend somebody now. As Christians, I'm not trying to offend anybody. Unless, of course, the gospel offends you. Then I'll preach it. As far as the practice of life, I don't care. You want me to wear a tie? I'll wear a tie. If I go preach in California, you know what I'm going to have? Shorts and a t-shirt and flip-flops on. If you go to Russia, you have to wear a three-piece suit. If I had to buy, buy a three-piece suit to preach in Africa, the guy told me, don't you show up in here without a three-piece suit on. They will not accept you. I, I even crushed my soul because you know where preachers sit in Africa? You sit up here on the stage. Boy, that violates my conscience like nobody's business. There, there ought to be no men before you. And the only reason I'm before you now is because I'm hiding behind this pulpit and the Word of God. Other than that, I would not be here. 
And they drug me against my will and set me down on that stage. And I sat there realizing this is their convictions and this is their conscience. And so here I sit and I hated it all the more. But I grinned and I, I bared it because that's what they do. There's all kinds of people that would be brought into a faithful body of Christ if the Lord knew. Now those people are going to love them. They would have a whole lot different opinions and convictions than we do. But the Lord's like, if, if they're going to love them, then I know a safe place for them. I can put them in here. They're not going to get swelled up over all that stuff. They realize that the most primary thing is the peace and the joy and the righteousness and the Holy Spirit. Well, I got to quit. Um, one more thing. Notice 15.1. The last thing is, is absolutely something you need to understand. And I tell you this often. Romans 15, verse 1. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not please ourselves. It offends me the word just is in there. It's in italics. <laughs> it's not supposed to be there. We're not here to please ourselves. Notice the reason that he gives. Notice the example of Christ. Verse 5, chapter 15, verse 3. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it was written, the approaches of those who reproached you fell on me. In other words, Jesus bore our sorrows. Can we not bear the convictions of our brothers and go right on and not be offended by them? I, I do want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 9 and I want you to see the Apostle Paul. And we'll be finished after I read this passage. Thank you for your patience this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. So this is what you're left with. You love one another. You don't judge because of these things. You don't put a stumbling block and flaunt your freedom before your brother. Don't you dare do that. Don't please yourself. So Paul's like, let me give you a running summary of all this, if you will, for as regard to my personal life. Notice 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19. Paul writes, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. To the Jew I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law as without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel. In other words, as far as Paul went, if it had to do to the essential doctrines of faith, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one spirit, one God and Father, I'll die, and he did. I'll die for those things. But in regard to anything else, it's totally a non-issue for me. We can have it, we can not have it. We can do it, we can not do it. It doesn't matter to me. I'll do what you do. Because what I'm trying to do is to gain your attention that I might tell you about Jesus. 
Now, there's a whole lot of issues, and if there's an issue in your mind, I really want to talk about that. I really want to walk through that, and I would love to do it corporately as a teaching thing for the entire body. So please, write an issue down on a piece of paper, drop it in the offering plate, send me a text, and we'll deal with it. And if you're like, I don't want you to deal with it, trust me, I'm not going to say Rob wants me to deal with how he needs to fix his hair. I'm not going to do that publicly. But I will walk through the circumstance publicly because I think it would be very, very beneficial for the body. And so if you do have one of those, let's walk through them, okay? I think it will help us all. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.